This turkey is really great, Aunt Judy. Let me tell you something, though. I get really tired of people putting down Mr. Trump. I mean, the man, he just, he cuts through all the noise and he tells it like it is. Climate change? Oh my, what a crock. The earth knows how to fix itself, okay? It's just hitting its natural reset button right now. You know, I don't see a problem with naming a sports team after Indians. I mean, we whooped them fair and square. Isn't that the, the whole point of Thanksgiving, right? I think food tastes better when it's genetically modified. You know, if people like Syrian refugees so much, they should just let them live in their beach houses, right? Doesn't anyone want to talk about this stuff? Whatever happened to the art of conversation? We can't hear you out there. Well, then can I come and sit at the big table with the rest of you? No! Damn. If I could just talk to them, I know I could change their minds. Also, it's freezing out here on the porch. Global warming? As if. Today on the show, we explore the whole notion of changing your mind. And now he's got a new position on refrigerator magnet schools. Colin McEnroe. I recently wrote some columns that displeased people who were ordinarily pleased with me and then made some other people happy who usually don't like me. I found the whole experience upsetting and unsettling. You know, we want to think of ourselves as having supple, flexible, independent minds. But it's actually pretty hard to change your own opinion about something. And as you'll find out when you go to your Thanksgiving dinners tomorrow, it's also very hard to change anybody else's mind about anything. That's what we're going to talk about today. We canvassed a bunch of thinkers. You're about to hear the first one. We spoke to George Lakoff, professor of cognitive linguistics at Berkeley and author of the all-new Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values, and Frame the Debate. Before we talk about how difficult it is for somebody to change his or her mind. George Lakoff, let's talk about how people get their values in the first place. Where do they come from? So, you know, I'm your pretty typical white liberal. I believe in reproductive choice. I believe in gun control. I'm sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter cause. I thought it was a mistake to intervene in Iraq in 2003. I could probably, you could probably have you taking those four things, lay out five other I closely hold held values of mine. But where do they come from? Why do I have this prescribable set of values? Well, what I discovered when I wrote the book Moral Politics back in 1996 was the following. If you have a list of values like that, and and conservatives have an opposite list of values, there's a generalization across them, and it's not obvious. One of the most important things that we experience in our lives is being raised in a family. With respect to politics, it turns out that we understand the nation as a family. We have founding fathers, we send our sons and daughters to war, etc. Not only that, we are first governed in our families, so we understand governing institutions, not just nations as a whole, but other governing institutions like religions, classrooms, uh, various institutions, businesses, the military, etc., as governing institutions. So we understand them often as families, But there are different kinds of families. One kind of family is what I'll call a nurturant parent family. If you have two parents, they have equal responsibility. Their job is to empathize with their children, to know what their children need, and to know their needs 
you need to have open two-way conversations with them. Now, in the strict father family, it's very different. A strict father, and sometimes it's a mother, has the idea that the authority of the father is what matters, and the father knows best. And the idea is that a child being raised there does whatever feels good to the child naturally, and he or she has to be taught right from wrong by the father. And the assumption is that this can only be done by punishment. And the idea is that the child, in order to avoid the punishment, has to get some discipline to not do just what feels good, but to do what the father says is right. And that if they get that discipline, they can go out in the world and they can become prosperous. Now, this kind of reasoning based on family-based structure gets mapped onto all institutions because we understand governing institutions as families. So you have totally different views and totally different views of people in general. First of all, I've read that book, and it's a great book, and it makes total sense. But the other thing that we know, or at least I think we know this, is that once people start to do this, and once people kind of pick their tribe or their family model, they'll begin to interpret other experiences, new experiences, not necessarily in terms of those family value sets or familial sensibilities, but just in terms of what team's uniform they're wearing. So I forget who's done this experiment, but uh, it might be somebody like Weston or somebody like that who introduces a new topic to somebody, something, a new issue that they don't know anything about, and then tells them, if they get the information that your fellow Democrats or your fellow Republicans or your fellow this or your fellow that, either like or reject it, they'll make their decision about it based on on that information, even if that information is 180 degrees counter to the truth. In other words, once people put on a uniform, whether it's the strict disciplinarian uniform or the nurturing parent uniform, then they start to interpret reality based on the uniform as much as on the sensibilities that supposedly underlie it. What you're really talking about is brain structure. Every idea we have, everything we understand, is understood in terms, physically, in terms of neural circuitry. And once you have neural circuitry for certain ideas, it's there in your brain. However, there are triggers uh, in the brain that trigger those circuitry, that circuitry. So when you say you're a Democrat or a liberal or so on, then that triggers that circuitry and all of the details of it. In addition, not everybody is just one thing. Mm -hmm. When you say that Democrats hold certain views, they may be seeing them as moderate uh, or as strict uh, progressives or as partly conservative, uh, that is, as moderate. And that's why it's easy to shift, so that it's not simply a tribe notion at all. The question is, do they understand this as moderate Democrats? And, you know, a lot of Democrats are moderate. So if you just say Democrats and Republicans, yeah, that'll be true. We're talking to George Lakoff, professor of cognitive linguistics at Berkeley, author of the all-new Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values, and Frame the Debate. George Lakoff, we have what you would refer to, I think, as the rational actor model when we think about how we think. Most people think that they, they make decisions based on the facts, based on information. How am I going to feel about climate change? How am I going to feel about the current mood of campus unrest in America? Well, I'm going to pull together all of the relevant information 
information as much as I possibly can, and then I'm going to use my rational intellect to sort this all out and come to the right judgment about it. I think that's the story we tell ourselves anyway. But is that, in fact, how we do it? Not at all. First of all, most thought is unconscious, about 98%. Only about 2% is conscious, and the rational actor model assumes it's all conscious. So that's simply a basic fact about neuroscience and cognitive science. The idea that you just take the facts and you know, reason to the same conclusion, as Descartes said in 1650, that's a 1650 view. I mean, it says the reason isn't physical, it's just uh, a matter of applying, applying logic. Uh, it is what makes us rational uh, animals, and therefore we all have the same reason. If you give us the facts, we'll reason to the same conclusion. That's just false, and we've known it, be, it has been false for many, many years. So let's talk about the difficulty of changing your mind under all those circumstances. Let's, let's pick some kind of real case uh, example. For example, we liberals might get frustrated looking at a, a city clerk, a town clerk in Kentucky who won't sign marriage licenses of gay couples. And, you know, underneath our frustration is, why doesn't she get it? You know, if I could just talk to her, I could change her mind. But imagine the difficulty. Imagine that that woman did hear some rational arguments uh, on behalf of the other position. She's been raised in one environment. The linguistic uh, matrix that she's been in the entire time is loaded up one side with uh, with all kinds of vocabulary uh, about it that kind of militates against the idea of gay marriage. And suddenly she thinks about changing her mind and taking a position where suddenly she would be embraced happily by Jane Fonda and Alan Dershowitz and all kinds of people that she's been sort of conditioned to think uncomfortably about and, and probably rejected by a lot of people whom she ordinarily considers allies and friends. I mean, isn't it almost impossible for a person in that position to change his or her mind? Well, it's worse than that. <laughs> Far worse, because remember that this is neural. It is in her brain. The strict father model is there. It applies in her religion, in her personal life, her everyday life, her values, not just her political values and social values, but values about all institutions. So it's not simply a matter of convincing her rationally that, first of all, most of this is unconscious, and which is the unconscious is more powerful than the conscious uh, because you, you can't change it, actually. I mean, those neural uh, connections that you have are not things that you actually see and, and hear and so on. They're there. They are part of who you are physically. So, uh, you know, we're just talking a few days from Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is famously a day when one of two things happen. Uh, either you sit down with your real family, not your uh, imagined political family, uh, but your real family. And if you come from one kind of family, everybody sits there and kind of agrees about everything. Uh, and in fact, you really would cause a stir if you suddenly said, you know, I don't feel the same way about gun control as I used to. I feel really differently from all of you. So there's sort of that kind of family where basically agreement is what happens. And then there's the, the kind of family that we see on television a lot, and, but which also really exists, where a lot of people get together. And they may be from the same family, but some of them may be spouses or dates that other people are bringing. And suddenly these arguments break out around the table, around some of these tripwire issues. Given everything that you've just said, it seems like that those arguments are a waste of time and energy. I mean, no one is going to convince anybody of anything, right? This is what I tell my students who ask me exactly that question. 
you know, if you're going to argue with your grandfather, don't do it. <laughs> don't argue with him. He loves you. No problem about that. But ask him a question, and the question is very simple. Uh, what have you done uh, that you are most proud of that helped other people? Because when you do, you'll make him think about his progressive values, his values not that are not just about exerting authority other, over other people and, and uh, being conservative and, and you know, putting other people down who are poor and so on. But make him think about those other things, and you're not, you may not change him very much. That's okay, but you'll get along with him. And not only that, the fact that he loves you is going to come out. And that love is important. Um, let me just ask you one last question, George Lakoff, and then you can get back to uh, important work that I, I know that you're probably doing, and thank you for your time uh, today. So I want to go back to your idea about people being biconceptual. So uh, basically, we contain, if not multitudes, at least dualities. One thing that sometimes gets said is, well, of course, there's that famous, he who is not a liberal in his youth has no heart, he who is not a conservative in his old age has no brain, various versions of that formulation. So here I am, Mr. East Coast white liberal, I recently wrote a piece where I took a rather dim view of some of the student protests going on at my alma mater, Yale, where people were getting very upset about Halloween costumes and and verbally assaulting faculty members in very unpleasant ways about this. And when I wrote the piece, people said, wow, he's just getting older. (laughs) He's getting crankier. Maybe he is getting more attracted to that strict parent model instead of the nurturing uh, parent model. Maybe that's possible. And maybe is that part of the biconceptualism notion, too, that that maybe as we age, we change and begin to bring forward some of the more buried parts of who we were? Well, we're always changing in both directions. In fact, the argument goes the other way. Uh, The more uh, older people depend upon um, safety nets and Social Security and so on, uh, they may become more liberal. So, I mean, you know, there, there are reasons to go in either direction, but there's another part of this, and that has to do with the fact that these models are not complete. You know, there are places that are open to interpretation of what counts, for example, as respect and what is worth respecting. So, for example, if somebody uh, really knows their, their field, their discipline, you may respect them for that, whether they, you respect their political views or not. And you can, have, you can divide that up and say, hey, look, you know, I believe uh, that uh, science is important and this is a good scientist, but uh, you know, I, the fact that this scientist has different political beliefs is a different matter. And those are things where you can be biconceptual about it and where it makes perfect sense to be biconceptual about it. George Lakoff, it has been so great to talk to you. George Lakoff, uh, of course, as we said before, professor of cognitive linguistics at Berkeley, author of the all-new Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values, and Frame the Debate. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, George Lakoff. I am. I'm going to see my son and grand and daughter-in-law and granddaughters. All right. No arguments, all right? <laughs> Take care. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. The show is about changing your mind or changing somebody else's mind. We'll be back after this.
So recently, as I said before, I took a position that's kind of different from the positions that I ordinarily take. I know it surprised a lot of people, and I found that I had a lot of internal discomfort about this. I was walking around wondering whether I'd done the right thing or not, wondering why I felt so anxious. Um, And as I was doing that, when I go for walks, uh, when I walk my dog, I listen to podcasts. And so uh, I was listening to a podcast called The Weeds, which is a weekly politics and public policy podcast uh, at Vox.com. And it turned out they were just just by chance. They were talking about exactly the same thing in some ways anyway, about how difficult it is for people to break ranks with whatever intellectual or ideological cohort they're in. So to discuss this some more, we have for this segment, first of all, Richard Petty, professor of psychology at Ohio State University, co-author of Attitudes, Insights from the New Implicit Measures, and Sarah Cliff, senior editor at Vox.com, where she contributes to The Weeds. She was actually the person who was talking. So, Sarah Cliff, you were like a voice from the heavens uh, in my earbuds uh, because you were talking about the fact that there's, you know, we think of people as rational actors uh, when they have an opinion, when they when they make a statement about their opinions. But in fact, there are very high social and kind of uh, outer costs to somebody if they if they suddenly say something that's very different from what the people around them believe. Can you elaborate on that? Sure, and I'm so glad to hear that um, we were such a good um, force in your in your life, and that we showed up at the right moment with our podcast. It was epiphanic. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, this is something you see a lot in research that. There are two ways I see kind of cost of changing your beliefs. One are social, where if you live in an area where a lot of people support gun rights or they support restricting gun rights or support abortion rights, support restricting abortion rights, there are some clear societal or social costs to shifting your opinion that you'll have to deal with more arguments, more um, more challenges, that you'll be different. Um, if you imagine someone like Sean Hannity, if he came out tomorrow on Fox News and said, you know, actually, I think we should really expand abortion rights in America. You can just imagine how he would be face all this backlash and shunning from the Fox community, which generally opposes abortion rights. So that's definitely part of it. And then another important part, I think, is also internal, that it's often hard to shift our beliefs because it'd be very difficult that we lived in a world where every day we had to rethink, you know, our positions on literally everything. That'd be so taxing. We wouldn't have time to do anything, which is one reason that we tend to form these beliefs and have difficulty leaving them, that once we've thought about something, we've settled on it, we can kind of set that aside for the time being. So you can base a lot of you know, internal discomfort, and rightly so, changing your positions when you kind of have this heuristic going on in the back of your mind saying, you know, I've settled on this. I'm not going to spend my every day reviewing how I think about the world, that actually making those changes can go against this way you've settled about thinking about the world. So, uh, Richard Petty, let's let's take her second point uh, first. So, yeah, I think a lot of people walk around with this kind of settled group of attitudes. uh, And even if they encounter new material, it seems to be, as she's suggesting, it would be exhausting uh, for a lot of people anyway to to think through something like this in its details as compared to where does it fit in to this other matrix of ideas that I have. Does that does research or, or, or theory bear that out at all? Yes, the research is really very consistent. People do not like inconsistency. They don't like it in themselves. It makes them feel uncomfortable, ambivalent, conflicted. They don't like it in other people. 
I mean, consistency in our own beliefs allows us to know who we are as people, self-identity. It, it helps to know, are we like this? Are we like that? Consistency in others makes them predictable. It, it makes them understandable. So as we just heard, that there are both practical considerations to consistency, how you deal with your neighbors, but there's this internal uh, side to it as well, that even if nobody knew about the inconsistency, didn't, you know, Sean Hannity had this experience just in his own head. He personally would feel inconsistent. So, right. So there's that. That's the internal part. The external part for Sean Hannity is a little bit easier to understand. Right. If suddenly he's got uh, a bunch of liberals running forward to embrace him and, you know, thanks for showing some real substance on, on all this, Sean. And, and you know, his um, his peers over at Fox are like, well, Sean's gone crazy. He's fallen off his white horse. Uh, what's wrong with him? I mean, and he might get fired. And he might get fired. So what you're saying is and I think it's something that um, that, that Sarah said as well in the podcast. There's just a big social cost to seeing something that doesn't fit. There is both a personal cost and a social cost. Double whammy. So, Sarah, then that sort of also takes us to the question that gets bandied about a lot on podcasts like The Weeds, which is that sort of it's sort of the Thomas Frank, what's the matter with Kansas question, that there are a lot of people who seem to embrace positions that don't really work out in their favor. Uh, you know, the, that, the, the typical Thomas Frank question is, why would you have a populace, some of whom, and this came up in an Alec McGillis uh, piece in The New York Times over the weekend, you know, a large proportion of, who, of whom may be using services somewhere located somewhere within the social safety net, uh, uh, most of whom are not people of great means, but they would align themselves with political interests that are opposed to social services and seem to favor people with considerably more means than they have. This is a question that gets asked over and over again. Why do people have opinions that seem to work against their own best interests? Right. I think, you know, one thing that, that you hit on is that it's so hard to change those opinions. You think of, you know, these voters who you might not understand why they're voting the way they are. For example, I read a lot about health care. So you see a lot of states voting in Republican governors who oppose the Medicaid expansion when you have a population that would really stand to benefit from the Medicaid expansion where hundreds of thousands of people, um, take a place like Texas, for example, could qualify for free health insurance if they likely elected if they elected a Democrat, which as as you could all agree is quite unlikely to happen in Texas. And one of the, you know, interesting things you see in this space of research about opinions is that we go about trying to change people's minds in a way that just doesn't seem to work. There's this idea of, you could almost think of it as the more information hypothesis, that if only people understood that if they elected a Democrat, they could get Medicaid, if only they had these facts, if I just told them this information, they would say, aha, of course this is right, I can't believe I was wrong, and they'll reverse their opinions, when actually we don't see that happening at all. So in a way, that sounds like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld talks about uh, sports interests. After a while, you start, you're just rooting for laundry. You know, the players come and go. Uh, you know, it's not the same people anymore. You're rooting for laundry. But it seems as though what she's describing is a little bit like that, too, in the sense that, um, you know, if I, if I told somebody who tended to, uh, to oppose various things associated with President Obama that he had a particular policy about, I don't know, the extermination of elephants and elephant poaching or something like that, that that they would just take the opposite position, just, you know, rather than really kind of work it all, all out on their own, how they felt about it, um, that they would probably just sort of jump in line with all their other thoughts. 
Yeah, the, there's an old theory in uh, social psychology called balance theory, and, and it just uh, easily says we like to agree with people we like, and we like to disagree with people we dislike. That makes the world harmonious. And, and so sometimes we wonder, that's, that's a reason why people will take positions that seem to be against their best interests, right? Because when you just look at it from the point of view of what is objectively good for you, at least from the point of view of an objective outside observer, and you can't understand why they won't adapt that position, you have to think about the other reasons people hold opinions, one of which is to fit in with their social group. And if their social group is on a totally different side, that could be a lot more important to them than their particular interest on something. Because if they're out of their group, that, that, that's a very serious consequence. So, Richard Betty, I mean, the, the big doomsday clock is ticking down right now before Thanksgiving dinner, where notoriously people sit down around a table and, uh, you know, particularly if they're, they've been brought to the dinner by somebody else or they're somebody's new spouse or new girlfriend or new boyfriend or something, you know, they may have different opinions than what, what gets uh, bandied about ac- across the table and arguments ensue. People try to change each other's minds, even if they're not from the outside, if, even if they're close uh, family members. People try to argue each other down and and change each other's mind. It sounds like from everything that you and Sarah are saying that that's a pointless exercise. Well, to some extent, you're not going to change somebody from one pole to the other pole over Thanksgiving dinner. That would be miraculous. What, what uh, people should aim for is to have the people on either side recognize that there are two sides to an issue. That, that, that's the first step in change, that if people think it's my way or the highway, there's only one side to the issue, they can't even see that there could possibly be some merit to the other side, that's what you need to focus on. Not saying, you're wrong, I'm right. It's just, okay, I've got you, I understand what you're saying, Uh, I see some merit to your position, if you could possibly say that, but can you see that there might be some merit to my side? That's the beginning of having a dialogue. And Sarah Cliff, for somebody who does what you do, and a little bit for somebody who does what I do, well, I I used to be the lone liberal voice on an otherwise commercial AM, CBS-owned talk station that had people like Rush Limbaugh on. And it was a very interesting thing to do because most of the people who listened disagreed with me and in many cases hated me. But for the the most part, I think we do wind up talking to people who think what we think, right? Um, People listen to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now!, but, I mean, very few people who are undecided about things would listen to a show like that. So do you worry that the work that you're doing is merely reinforcing and buttressing the thoughts of people who already think what you do? Right. That is definitely something I think about as I work through these issues. And with Vox, you know, our mission is to explain the news. And my boss, our editor-in-chief, Ezra Klein, um, he wrote a piece right when we launched. Um, I think the headline of it was How Politics Makes Us Stupid, and it was basically about these issues, about how as we become more partisan, it's harder and harder for us to hear the other side. So something you know, we've talked about internally, well, what does this mean for Vox? Um, what does this mean for the information that we're putting out there? And I think you know, we definitely are serving a good, and there's a lot of space where we're covering things that don't have as much of a partisan bias right now. Like a lot of people want to understand what ISIS is, and that's a space where, you know, I think there's more demand for just straight information um, that doesn't really fit into the kind of blue-red divide that we have. Um, But I do think there's a risk, you know, being journalists, that people are going to use the information that they find to reinforce their views. And it's one that you know, it's very hard to do something about. And if you kind of look at media as kind of becoming more polarized in this way, where if you 
want to believe that, you know, President Obama is the best president ever and Obamacare is this giant success, like you can go and watch MSNBC and have their worldview affirmed. But if you want to learn that President Obama is the worst um, president ever and that Obamacare is crippling the American healthcare system, you can go to Fox News and you can get that vantage point. So you really see, you know, there's less and less media, you know, in, in between that. And there's more and more because there's more and more appetite for those types of things. And Richard Petty, you know, I may be luring you a little bit out of your field of expertise, but but maybe not. So, um, you know, I mean, I did have this experience where I was writing about the current wave of campus unrest, and I, I came down in a different place from where people thought that I might come down. And, and I really did have that experience of looking around me metaphorically at the people who were sharing my position and people who were whacking me on the back. And I was having kind of a reverse Sean Hannity experience where I was thinking, wow, you know, I just don't expect to be on the riverbank with Jonah Goldberg waving at Jelani Cobb on the other side of the river. This this isn't me. And there was something that actually felt almost existentially unsafe about that. Like this isn't, you know, I thought, I wondered if I was having this really kind of atavistic reversion to tribal culture where I thought, well, you know, in the long run, these people aren't my tribe and they won't take care of me. They'll turn on me. In an instant. And meanwhile, I've severed all these really important loyalties. I've I've fallen in the eyes of all these other people. And it was actually I found it a very disturbing experience. It wasn't a minor thing. It felt kind of unsafe. Uh, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, you know, when you take a position that's surprising, that people expect you to say one thing, but then you say something else, their their reaction is magnified when your uh, position is surprising. And so um, if you take a position that's against their own and that's surprising that you do that, their reaction is even more negative than it would have been. And if, but if you take a position that's more positive than they would have expected, then they're, and it's surprising that you were that positive and it's in their favor, they even like it better because it was surprising. So when you're going to take a position against someone uh, and it's not the position that you normally would hold, so people are surprised by it, let's say you're doing this at Thanksgiving dinner in the example you had before, one thing you can do to temper people's reactions is to forewarn them that you're going to uh, present something that might be a little unexpected. And so then they're braced for it. This, this is like when the doctor says, you're going to feel a little a prick when I stick this into your uh, arm. So you're prepared for something negative, and your reaction isn't as negative as it normally would be. So forewarning people when you're going to do a change like that might make their reaction a bit less negative, and then you'd feel better about it. Although, Sarah Cliff, there's also there's a trope that that exists, I think, within the pitched political battles of our age. And that, and I got accused of that, too, because in the column that I wrote, I said, well, you know, ordinarily, I'm completely on the other side of this debate. And I, I certainly oppose, you know, Native American team mascots. And I was one of the first people to suggest that Yale drop the name of Calhoun College. It's named for John C. Calhoun. I cited some other things. I said, but I really I'm not there with this thing. And I was accused of falsely or cringe, cringingly or cringeworthily bringing up my liberal bona fides, that, that somehow or other that, that that itself is so crypto-truckling as to con- constitute an offense. Yeah, I think, you know, what you experience is a really interesting example of all of this, where, you know, and that you kind of felt the need to say, look, guys, like, I'm generally on this team, that I'm part of this tribe, I identify with it, but in this case, you know, I'm separate. You kind of see this backlash of people saying, well, you, no, you're saying you're not really on our team on this one, which I think leads to some of that 
backlash that you're seeing and kind of speaks to everything we've been talking about, how, you know, it's not just internally feeling discomfort, but like this is exactly, you know, one of the reasons why we we might be hesitant to air our public views that are different. And kind of one of the things, it's interesting to have this conversation around Thanksgiving, because one of the things you hear, see there is like a bit of the mixing of the tribes people have set up, that people have kind of scattered themselves far from their families. They've gone and lived in places, presumably, where they found like-minded people, where they you know developed these beliefs. And then Thanksgiving, we decided to scramble that all up and bring together a bunch of different people who are living in a bunch of different tribes. And that probably is a lot of the reason why you see some of the conflicts that you often do at Thanksgiving dinners. Sarah Cliff, uh, absolutely read her work at Vox.com and then listen to The Weeds, the weekly policy podcast uh, that she does with Ezra Klein and Matthew Iglesias. All right, Richard Betty, the author, co-author of Attitudes, Insights from the New Implicit Measures. Thanks very much for joining us today, both of you. You're welcome. And have yeah, a, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, have a happy Thanksgiving indeed. <laughs> Stay out of trouble. Bye-bye now. Thanks. Bye. We're going to grab a break. We're going to come back with this show about changing your own mind or changing someone else's opinion after this. waterboarding. What people do at the beach is their own business. Oh, that's what that is? Then I am changing my mind. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zach LaSala, who appeared in the intro with a cast of thousands. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was going to be played by Bradley Cooper, but we changed our minds, so Kevin James. For show pages, articles, and the Here and Now staff's explanation for changing the show to there and then, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow and Friday, enjoy delicious special programming. We'll be back on Monday. And now, back to Colin. So we've been talking about how people change their minds. Now, when we talk about religious conversion, we usually don't use that phrase, change your mind. We talk maybe about changing your heart. We talk about epiphanies. Uh, we talk about spiritual conversion experiences. But somehow or other, some of the same dynamics are in place. Sooner or later, for example, you have to announce to the people around you that you think something that you didn't used to think. So Emily Sutcliffe is joining us now. She's associate director of the Toll Public Interest Center and director of student public service initiatives at University of Pennsylvania Law School. Um, I'm actually going to read uh, something that, uh, that Emily wrote uh, in an article about Catherine Russell, the widow of Boston bombing suspect Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Uh, she says, I come from a relatively well-educated, upwardly mobile, white Christian-American family. Until my late teens, not a single person would have described me as religious or as having the slightest interest in religion. In college, after reading the Quran for a class and doing a great deal of subsequent research, I converted to Islam. This change, this new identity, was overwhelming at first when financial factors collided with the 
struggle to navigate my old life as a new Muslim. I withdrew from college. During the time I was out of school, I got married to a Muslim man, moved to the Middle East, and had a child. If we stop the story there, if we fail to shade in the picture with context and detail, mine could easily be a tale of tragedy, brainwashing, and not without my daughter levels of drama. So, um, Emily, um, that's all to sort of set up uh, what really did happen, since those are not, in fact, good descriptions uh, of your life. Um, and and I guess I do want to begin with the aha moment, if there was one. In other words, yeah, we do often talk about, you know, uh, epiphanies or moments where one suddenly embraces uh, a different faith or a newfound faith. Was that the case for you, or was there a slow and steady reading of the Quran and a kind of sense that, oh, this seems to speak to me? Yeah, I think it was more of a slow and steady kind of opening up of my mind, um, not even a changing in the sense that I wasn't educated enough on Islam at the time to even know if I did or didn't agree with it or if it resonated with me. So, um, the more that I learned about it, I was kind of surprised by the moments that kept accruing where I was like, oh, well, I believe in that already, or, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me, or that's really wise, or, you know, these type of kind of moments kept happening, and so they sparked me to look deeper um, and to continue studying and speaking with Muslims till I reached a point where I kind of um, experienced a great deal of stress where I had to say to myself, I'm either going to move forward and live my life as a Muslim, which will have some uh, catastrophic you know, changes to life as I know it, um, or I will proceed as I am and kind of live with this sense that I'm not being genuine or doing what I truly feel um, I should be doing. Um, and so that was kind of uh, the big moment for me. And, and and was that a moment or was that a continuum? In other words, I can imagine sort of sliding the abacus bead along uh, its wire to, you know, at each new point, well, it's getting harder and harder to do that second thing, to, to pretend that I can kind of live in the default setting that I had, which was neither particularly spiritual nor particularly Christian, but not at all Muslim, uh, and and harder to do that and more more tempting is probably the wrong word, but uh, more genuine and compelling to do the first thing. I mean, was there, in fact, a moment where you just said, okay, I've hit my break point? Yeah, I think there was, you know, I kept kind of um, toying with the idea, if you will, of just kind of jumping in and, and, and converting um, once I felt that I'd gathered enough information and that this religion really, really resonated with me. Um, and then I did definitely reach a point where I just said, you know, I was raised in a way that um, my family and I really value kind of being real, to be a bit kind of, you know, simple with it, but it, being genuine and being who you are. Um, and so that takes many different iterations, and I've always tried to live that way. And so when this came up, I said, you know, to thine own self be true, I wouldn't be, you know, upholding that sense of truth if I just kind of went on with, with what was easy and what would rock the boat the least. You know, in the piece that you wrote about Catherine Russell uh, for uh, themuslimvillage.com, I mean, you talk about this house in some circles. This is perceived not as um, a conscious and, and uh, logically is also the wrong word, but um, a, 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 not as a decision that it's arrived at by careful thought. But, but some people will perceive this as something, that cra- something crazy that somebody did, right? Yeah. Um, and talk about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we 
all cultures, right, we get so entrenched in kind of um, our everyday common sense, if you will, and our conditionings that when something is kind of more than a tiny standard deviation away from what we consider to be normal, um, then it's like, whoa, there's something very strange there, something crazy, you know, there must not have been careful deliberation. Um, and I think we see that a lot with how people perceive Muslim women, um, especially converts. I, I can't tell you how many times people, uh, very well-intended, kind-hearted people, have assumed that I became a Muslim because I fell in love with an Arab man and he wooed me and I just, you know, converted to Islam and wore a scarf because he told me to. Um, that's a very common thing that I get all the time. Well, if you think about what they're doing when they do that, and obviously in your case they've got they've got the cart before the horse. You became a Muslim first, uh, then uh, uh, the other thing came second. Um, right. But um, if you think about what they're thinking about when they do that, I think what they're saying really is they're sort of relegating this set of choices to a different area almost of the brain. Right? Falling in love uh, is something that uses different if the the different parts of the brain light up on the neural MRI. You know that uh, other brain chemicals are involved, and they're not the ones that involve rational choice or free choice. We have a lot less control over who we fall in love with. So it, it, what they're really saying is this other decision that she made probably existed within that context. A bunch of very emotional uh, forces drove her to fall in love with an Arab man. Uh, and so that's where we'll also put this other decision. The Islam, the headscarf, it all belongs in that emotional sector. And for you, that's not where it belongs. It belongs in the sector of conscious and free choice. That is, that's very correct. Um, and yes, it's seen as um, this must be something just done on this kind of emotional, you know, as you described it, thing that would be kind of carried up in, in love and lust. Um, but for me, um, and for many people that I know, it's something that we spent a lot of time thinking about. We studied the religion, um, you know, about this issue. Um, and I'm happy to be known as a Muslim woman. Um, I feel that it's just part of who I am. It doesn't uh, limit me in any way. So uh, we're heading right into Thanksgiving. It's the family time. Um, how did your family process this? I mean, Thanksgiving dinner tables are famous for being places where people, uh, you know, show up with very differing views of the world, maybe than they had in the past or different, different views from what their family members had. How did your family deal with this? Did you pay any kind of price with them? Sure. Um, well, I think one of the amazing things that made me able to kind of have this change of mind or this opening of my mind um, was that I come from a very um, open-minded family that leads first with love. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but the central figures in my family, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, they truly lead with love. And so they come from a place of kind of we know and we love this person, we trust her, and so let's see what's going on here. And um, and that's what happened. Um, my very close family, when I first made this decision, they said, um, bring us all the books that you can about Islam. We want to learn about Islam. We want to know why you're interested in this. Um, they read the books. My grandmother, I remember her saying to me, wow, you know, she's a, a, a Catholic, and she said to me, wow, you know, Islam seems like um, something for very smart people because it's really deep and um, it's really, um, the, the writing is beautiful and so it's something that requires a lot of intellect. And, you know, I, re I remember her telling family members kind of in this way of, um, you know, letting them know that there was not going to be any way of not accepting me. Um, she said, you know, if Emily wants to 
come to dinner naked, if she wants to come to dinner with a scarf on her head, if she wants to be a Muslim or a Buddhist, we accept her, we love her, and we're not the type of family that judges people based on these things. And, and I remember she would say that for a while in every kind of family gathering to let people know, you know, hands off, back off if you have any thoughts. And my mother as well. You know, my mother, is, she raised me. Um, she was a single mother. My father, my, her husband passed away when I was 13 months old. And um, I was raised where we would have, you know, predominantly Christmas, but we would also do Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. And, you know, she would, we didn't know anything about Ramadan or else she probably would have done that as well. But she really wanted me to be well-rounded and to understand, you know, she was very active in the civil rights movements and things like that, I think, go hand in hand with being able to accept people changing their mind, if you will. You know, these both sound like uh, amazing women and exactly the kind of women that you'd want to have in your life if you're going through a transition like this one. But, you know, Robert Frost said home is where they have to take you in. Not everybody has to take you in and not everybody has to be amazing for you. It's got to be the case that there are friends of yours or people maybe a little less closely related to you who just weren't as cool with this. Absolutely. I had um, an uncle, a husband of, of an aunt, um, at a family gathering. He's from out of town, and they were there. I was so happy to see him. I ran up to hug him, and he pushed me away and refused to hug me and wouldn't speak to me and would only speak about me to other people, like in front of me. He wouldn't directly address me, refused to take a family photo with me that day, um, and this became a, a big kind of family drama, um, and his wife, my aunt, was, was so devastated that he did that. His children were so devastated, um, and it's something that even recently, years later, um, another relative of mine said, do you know that I spoke to him, and, and he says one of his biggest regrets in life is that he treated you that way, and he's thought about it, and he's so ashamed of himself. Now, that's a happy story, um, but certainly there were friendships that I lost, um, people saying, you know, could you come to this gathering, but don't wear your scarf because you make people uncomfortable when you wear your scarf. Um, and one of the larger issues, not necessarily within my family, because, again, I am very blessed with a wonderful family, but um, you instantly, as a convert to Islam, especially if you wear a scarf, you instantly lose your identity as an American, as a European-American, right? So your, your kind of cultural, ethnic, racial identity, your social class, they all fly out the window. And that, to me, has been one of the hardest things to navigate because the fact that I put a scarf on doesn't make me Egyptian or Saudi Arabian. I'm still the same girl who grew up in New Jersey, rode horses, I have, you know, no pop culture references from the 80s and the 90s and things like that, but no, very few people are able to perceive me that way, and that has been the hardest and the most painful thing to navigate. Um, and so that you, I get things all the time. Recently I was in a salon, and one of the other clients said, oh, are you going on vacation? And I said, yeah, and she said, that's great. Are you going back to your home country? <laughs> you know, and things like that, again, well-intended, but they're hurtful because they remind me again that I am viewed as an other as an outsider, and that people who are kind and tolerant will accept the outsider other who's really not an outsider at all, and that people who are intolerant and unkind, you know, will not accept me and, and may harm me in this current um, environment that we live in now. Okay, I, w I want to ask you one last question about this. So we're talking to Emily Sutcliffe. Uh, she is a, a convert to Islam. Um, 
you know, when things like that happen, so you have a little problem with your uncle, though that eventually gets uh, repaired a bit. You have other friends who aren't cool with the headscarf, maybe aren't 100% cool with you as a Muslim. And then you have that other thing that you just talked about that's fascinating, that notion that a whole bunch of the parts of your identity are in the eyes of other people stripped away. Uh, and, and instead of becoming one of us, you, you're kind of viewed as other with a capital O. Um, I think for a lot of people, that would feel like being in an elevator car that suddenly dropping about 10 floors in a big hurry, you know? I mean, was there any feeling like that? Like, wow, you know, if all these people suddenly feel really differently about me, am I losing some part of me? Yeah, I mean, I think actually that was probably slower because I was naive and I didn't understand what was totally at stake. I wouldn't have changed anything, that's for sure. Um, But I think I didn't understand the extent to which we filter um, so people can hear my speech and still say to me things like, wow, you speak English really well. What's your native you know, language? Um, so that I didn't understand how sick and heavy and in-depth our filters are. That when you see a scarf or you see any, you know, mil- there are millions of things that we all see. We just immediately kind of have these reactions or these filters that we don't intentionally, you know, mean to have. And that's one of the main things I want to express here is I believe you know, people are good. I truly believe that. And I think most people don't want to be unkind or intolerant. Um, but we just have been conditioned, we humans, um, and we Americans in a specific way, to, to understand, you know, what is American, what is human, what is, you know, high class, all of these on and on in a very specific way. So anytime something deviates from that, we don't quite know how to process it. Um, And I think I was naive about that in the beginning. All right. Well, Emily Sutcliffe, thank you so much for talking to me today. Enjoy your Thanksgiving uh, and enjoy your, I guess it isn't a newfound faith anymore, but uh, enjoy your life and your family. Thank you so much, Colin. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving, so real fast. Thank you, Kyone Wolf, Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nalea, Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Mr. Dankoski, Katie Tolarski, all the interns, Heather Brandon, Gina Amatruda, all the news people. I hope you all love your jobs and your colleagues as much as I do. Baby, can I change my mind? Please, 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 baby. I just want to change. How about we talk about capital punishment? No. Fox News? No. The war on drugs? No. Adele?